Support for the Capital Connection comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities through the Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. It's the Capital Connection. Hi, I'm David Gustina. Back with us is Lucy Lang, who is coming up on two years as the Inspector General of New York State. You can find out more at https colon forward slash forward slash ig dot Welcome back to the Capital Connection, Inspector General Lucy Lang. Thank you, David. There's no one I would rather celebrate my two-year anniversary with than you and the WAMC family. Well, happy anniversary. It is a job that has a lot of responsibility. We talked about a number of things when you were on the first time with us, including your demand for independence in that job. And I know you have been working on getting your office up to snuff with the rules and regulations. Why don't we start there? Tell us what you've done in your own office. We appointed a chief technology officer for the first time in the agency's history. And he has been charged with working with our terrific IT staff and all of our staff in the different disciplines of the house to make sure that we have a state-of-the-art program for case management. And that, we believe, is really going to transform our practice in the years to come because evidence is coming in so many different forms, including electronic forms. And we want to be best positioned to be able to analyze evidence quickly, efficiently, and accurately in furtherance of complete investigations. What does it mean in here when it says trained all staff in psychological first aid? Well, we worked with social workers from the new school who trained folks coming out of war zones in how to identify signs of trauma. One of the reasons that we thought to do that was because our workforce was emerging from the pandemic when I came into office. And of course, the public was similarly emerging from the pandemic. So we are getting calls from people who have experienced all kinds of challenges over recent years. And sometimes the call things they are calling about are incredibly traumatic. And what we want to make sure that we're able to do is to recognize those signs of trauma and direct people appropriately to give them the resources they need to serve them, whether or not we are the agency best suited to do that. Lucy Lang, this makes me think of what's been happening in the news as of late. And we've seen with the conflict in Israel and Gaza, the issue of hate has risen all over the world, and it's up dramatically in New York. And we're not only talking about Jewish hate, black hate, transgender hate, you name it, these forms of what I would say ultimate ignorance are growing in our state. I wonder if that's part of that psychological first aid in recognizing that somebody might be suffering from trauma from this. Absolutely. And as a Jewish New Yorker, this feels deeply personal to me. I want to make sure that my staff are able to receive the support that they need because they reflect the diversity of New York State, as they should. And people come from very, very different backgrounds. So in troubling times like these, we want to support folks internally. And of course, we want to provide support for the public. Now, as you get your office ramped up and have your staff trained, you're also out there training the other staff and talking to them. What does that mean in terms of the number of investigators that you have going out and talking to other agencies? 
We've created for the first time ever the role of director of training, and that staffer is working with every investigator, every auditor, and every lawyer in our office to identify agencies that need training and to hone trainings that are specifically for those. We train every incoming class of corrections officers in the Department of Corrections. We have now that we are about two years into our new jurisdiction over gaming in New York State. We have trained every member of the Gaming Commission across the state. We are out working with uh, members of the Workers' Compensation Board. We are working with the Bridge Authority, with the Parks Department, with every agency under our jurisdiction to make sure that folks are both aware of their obligations under the state executive law, aware of the ethical constraints on their positions, and that they know that we're available to report and to report anonymously where they see wrongdoing. I read, I believe it was in the Times somewhere, that the it may have been Spectrum News, forgive me if I'm getting that source wrong, but it was in the news, that gaming complaints are up considerably. They are. Are we talking about now because of the online aspect of gaming, or is it just gaming in general? Of course, the gaming industry, as you say, has expanded with the presence of online mobile sports betting. It may also be that moving the gaming inspector general out from the gaming commission and into the offices of the inspector general has created a kind of line that people are responding to. But I also believe that it is the work of our deputy IG for gaming going out on the ground, working at racetracks and casinos to train people. We've really done a tremendous amount of outreach, and I'm grateful to the gaming staff for having done that. That could also be a form of trauma, couldn't it? If someone has a gambling addiction, that Absolutely. may find its way right into some staff of an agency that could cause problems, not only with their own funds, but with public funds. You know, David, we are talking to some of our partner agencies, the Office for Addiction Support, and also to some of the industries like the NFL, where we see problem gambling and thinking about how we might be able to create resources and better support people who are suffering from gambling addiction, because we certainly do see that as the industry is expanding, the attendant problems are expanding as well. And one of the things we talked about last time you were here, Lucy Lang, State Inspector General of New York, was the idea that you were going to look more at systemic problems than rather trying to do the gotcha game of getting maybe one individual who is ultimately a symptom of a larger issue. And you've been looking at one of the agencies, the Department of Corrections, I know, looking at abuses from COVID policies, fraud, and there are some pretty galling cases, but talk a little more about the systemic part of this and what kind of examples are involved here. Well, we spoke a few months ago about our report identifying widespread abuses of workers' compensation in the Department of Corrections. And the contract that enables that abuse is currently under review. So our hope is that New Yorkers will call for changes to create guardrails to help curtail those abuses. And the abuses can include up to 40 percent of correction staff being out on workers' compensation at a facility at a time, which means that incarcerated people are limited in the programming that they're able to access and, of course, that staff are working double and triple shifts at the expense of their family and their own well-being. And the systemic part of that, wouldn't part of that be why is the prison system a place where so many people are trying to get off of working? And how do we fix that problem? That's absolutely right. And it's one of the reasons that we've really committed to working alongside the Department of Corrections and visiting all of the stakeholders who have something to say about the challenges the correction system is facing right now at this moment of criminal justice reform when there are increasing calls for changes in conditions and for decreasing the criminal justice footprint statewide. 
Let's at least share one case. The doc's staffer who submitted dozens of forged doctor's notes to obtain her sick leave. That's a case that was not a workers' compensation case, but an outright fraud case. And so we see that not just in docs, but in other facilities as well. And one of the reasons that we committed to and have followed through on publishing all of the letters that we provide to our jurisdictional agencies in the time since I took office is to identify where there are patterns across agencies. And we just this morning published about 13 recently sent letters that included the use of forged doctor's notes, the use of forged time cards. And we are really committed to those specific cases, making sure that folks are held accountable, but also that all of the state agencies are putting into practice the kind of protocols that prevent Mm -hmm. the abuse of the system that comes at a cost to New Yorkers. Is there an average time from, let's say, complaint to full-on investigation when it comes to something like this? I mean, I know you probably have to verify that the complaint is legit and you have to follow certain protocols, as you said. So is there some sort of time frame that you look at when you say almost like a lawyer's investigation, right, in a case? How long will this take from lip to cup? Well, I came from a district attorney's office where we had the uh, constraint of six days to present a case to a grand jury after someone was arrested if they were held in. And the speed here is very different because we are usually dealing with a far pre-arrest investigation. That said, we do an interdisciplinary assessment of every complaint within a week of receipt. And then within the week or two following that, The team, which includes a member of leadership, assesses whether or not there's merit to the complaint, whether it's something that should be sent back to the agency for further analysis, whether it's something that more properly belongs in the state's kind of HR jurisdiction, or whether it warrants the full open of an investigation. And our investigations can last from a month on something that's cut and dry and focused on an individual person to, unfortunately, to several years where we identify that there may be more widespread misconduct or where we find that we need to obtain a great deal of additional documentary evidence. Well, if you're doing a fraud investigation and someone's convicted of criminal behavior, are you a referral agency to then the law enforcement agency that gets involved? We're really fortunate to have strong relationships with law enforcement across the state. So we work sometimes with the local district attorneys, sometimes with the attorney general's office, and often with the United States attorney's offices in prosecuting cases where we feel that there is a likelihood of a criminal outcome. And excuse me, let me just interrupt you for a second. And are those folks likely to refer an investigation to you? Will it come up the chain? So like, let's say Albany County District Attorney David Soares, will he say, hey, look, you might want to look further into this case. Absolutely. Okay. So your investigations take time, a little more time than it would be in a criminal case in a court, but certainly complaints are important to your office and you want people to file those complaints. Let's talk about that. The average person out there may have a complaint. It may not be handled directly by your office, but certainly we can go to that website, we can get to you to find out where we might complain depending on where the complaint would have to go to. That's right. We're always happy to serve as a clearinghouse if we're not the right place for a complaint. And people can reach us at 1-800-DO-RIGHT or through our website, ig.ny.gov, or on social media platforms at New York State IG. And it's interesting because sometimes what starts as a small complaint turns out to be a much, much broader problem. So for example, we, during COVID, started to receive complaints that people trying to get their unemployment insurance benefits would seek those and then be told that they had already received them. 
And it turned out in one case that we've investigated, uh, an Albany woman spent the entire fall of 2020 touring ATMs around the capital region in her Maserati SUV, withdrawing unemployment cash from accounts she had created from identities stolen from unsuspecting New Yorkers who were then not able to receive their own unemployment insurance benefits that were sorely needed at that time in the pandemic. So that turned out to be part of a much broader scheme to defraud New Yorkers who are entitled to these benefits. And and that's an investigation that is ongoing. So she has now pled guilty and will be repaying $700,000 in restitution to the state. But How'd she get caught? It's actually a pretty interesting story. She was identified through the use of surveillance footage at some ATMs. And a member of my staff working in collaboration with local police was able to identify the person they believed to be mm-hmm. showing up on a number of different ATMs where they were using these, these what we then understood to be not her identities. And coincidentally, this investigator from my office, I believe, was getting gas at a gas station and saw the familiar Maserati in the parking lot and walked in and saw that she was, in fact, there and at an ATM. At an ATM. And oh. so called the office for backup. A colleague joined him and they trailed her to a storage facility. Huh. And later we were able to search the storage facility, find additional proceeds of her wrongdoing, and to pursue a criminal case against her. My goodness. So small town, small bunny, right? Well, but it might even be easier for some in a larger city like New York to get away with it, right? Well, we see it happening across the state and we are very aggressively working working to identify and dismantle unemployment insurance fraud schemes. Well, let's also talk a little bit about something that often makes the political debates, which is welfare fraud and people's sense of whether we should be providing people with welfare. And often what's used as the complaint, I would say most of the time from the Republican side of the aisle, is that there's too much welfare fraud. We need to go after these welfare cheats. How much of a percentage of what you're actually seeing out there comes directly from welfare fraud? We certainly investigate allegations of welfare fraud, and some of them are really just sad cases where people are not benefiting in huge amounts. And in those cases, we work with the Department of Social Services to shore up whatever the gap was that was allowing someone to defraud in some nominal amount, because of course it can't continue. But the cases that we feel are more egregious are ones where people are really capitalizing on vulnerable New Yorkers and getting benefits to which they're not entitled. And I think, in fact, of a recent case in which an Erie County man received thousands and thousands of dollars in SNAP benefits in the names of his children with whom he was out of touch and did not have custody. And so that's the kind of galling behavior that we are really committed to cracking down on and that we work very closely with the Departments of Social Services around the state and with district attorneys to make sure doesn't happen, that folks are held accountable and that kids get the benefits they need. Sure. And, you know, if you add up the monetary fraud in that particular case might not come close to a white collar fraud case where millions of dollars are being redirected. Absolutely. We're speaking with Lucy Lang. She is the New York State Inspector General. Let's go on to another subject, which is related to all this. And I began to think of it as the example of the woman going ATM to ATM and stealing identities. Data. You are now a, a year into your open data plan. Now, that has to do with allowing data out there for people to see public data, which is something we at Public Radio like to see public officials do, put their information out there for the public. Let's start there on your open data plan and what that means. Then I want to go into the dangers of having open data. How do we 
incorporate AI now into this and the future, which looks frightening when it comes to just one phrase I'll mention, deep fakes. Ooh, bringing out the big guns, David. I'm sorry. Well, a year in, we have been posting our complaint data monthly, and we're seeing thousands of users a month reviewing our data, which means that what we're doing is working, that people want to see what it is we're doing with their taxpayer dollars. It means that journalists and researchers are using it for the purposes it was intended. Complaints have increased 6% since we started publishing the data, and we are receiving 22% more FOIL requests, which despite the fact that it's an increased <laughs> burden on my FOIL team, it does mean that the public is taking an increasing interest and seeking to learn more about our work, which is precisely what we intended. And just for our listeners, freedom of information law requests. So that means public officials should be giving up public information. They actually work for us, you know. That's exactly right. And we uh, we invite the public to ask us what it is we're doing. So our transparency plan has been really successful in terms of that aggregate data and also in terms of publishing the letters. I described some of them before. And we really have worked closely with all the agencies we oversee, both to encourage them to increase their transparency where possible and to lead by example. And our hope is that by putting out a dashboard that includes our materials and everyone seeing that the world has not fallen, that we may see other state agencies follow suit. Hmm. Well, let's move into the more interesting and potentially dangerous area of AI or even just the misuse of data. I'm guessing, after talking to the controller, certainly, the issue of cybersecurity is foremost on your minds. And then when you add in AI, there's the positive and the negative side. Can you use AI, for example, to monitor agencies? For example, there was an article in the Times Union about AI being monitoring prisoners' phone calls, which under law is okay, but the question was about recording private conversations between the person and their lawyer. So you have all these areas here. I know it's muddled, but let's start with information, protecting that information for the public. I'm glad that you raise it because it is such a gnarly set of problems. And while we are working to increase our transparency with the public, we are simultaneously concerned about the confidentiality that has to be baked into the work that we do. Because for every complaint that comes to us in which there is a commission of wrongdoing, there is a complaint that comes to us in which a person is cleared of wrongdoing. And it is a complicated line when we put things out and when we don't. Now, just to give an example, we made the decision as an office to not put out press releases when someone is arrested, but rather to wait until someone is convicted because of the presumption of innocence. And that goes to this core commitment we have to confidentiality, to due process, et cetera. And those are questions that are really at the core of how we're going to handle artificial intelligence as a law enforcement community and as investigators. We are doing our very best to make sure that all of the decisions we make about reviewing of surveillance footage, of bank records, of cell phone data, of emails, leverages available technology, but does so in a way that doesn't jeopardize the integrity of the information that we get out of it. We're speaking with Lucy Lang. She is the State Inspector General of New York. 
Well, let's move on to something else I wanted to ask you about. Your office has somebody that is called a special investigations person. And Jessica Haas That's right. is named attorney in charge of special investigations. So she is kind of a gatekeeper, right? Well, it's a collective decision what falls under that purview. And of course, many of our investigations are very special to me. But what we intended in creating that position was making sure that we had a senior, experienced attorney who we could call upon, especially in those sort of things are on fire moments, to deploy resources to investigate the most sensitive matters. And we've been very fortunate to have her serving in that role. That's got to be something that might keep you up at night, huh? What's going to be on fire today? (laughs) Do I have to call Jessica? (laughs) It sure is. (laughs) Well, I also, in my research, said, do other states also have offices of inspector general? And it looks like almost all of them do. Florida seemed to have the most, by the way. I think maybe they like the phrase inspector general attached to most titles. New York has quite a few as well. Do you ever coordinate? Is there ever a multi-state investigation where you ever have to talk to another inspector general, the Massachusetts inspector general, the Connecticut, whatever it might be? Obviously, issues don't stop at the border. One of the first things that I did upon taking office was to join the National Association of Inspectors General, and I'm so thrilled that we were able to host that association for their annual conference in New York City just last month. We had 500-something inspector generals from all over the country and three international inspector generals who joined us for a really robust set of conversations and trainings about best practices in the work that we do of oversight. And inspector generals can range from handling discrete areas of a municipality, the public school system, for example, or the transit system, to overseeing a city like in New York City, the Department of Investigations, to something more like us, the state inspector general. And it it really does vary by state. But it's quite an old concept dating back to uh, Louis XIV, in fact, and has been part of the American tradition, really in the military context, since the days of George Washington. In fact, an upstater, Baron von Steuben, the first American inspector general. The issue of elections and voting this week in New York State, and I know that's not your jurisdiction. However, you are a politician. You are a person who understands elections. You've run. Why don't people vote and turn out for elections? What is it in the mindset of someone, and it could be different reasons, that they say, ah, I'm not going to go vote? This is right on point to the issues we've been talking about, David. It is people being disaffected by politics, people feeling that government doesn't serve them. So the work we do in the oversight community to make sure that people know that government is operating with integrity and that when it's not, someone is looking at it and there will be consequences is precisely what makes people have confidence in reporting crimes and wrongdoing, and makes them feel like their vote actually matters. I voted early last week at Wadley High School in Upper Manhattan, and I was the only person in the gymnasium. And I want to give a tremendous shout out to the poll workers Mm -hmm. because there were probably 15 poll workers in there waiting, there to serve, making sure the integrity of the electoral process was in place. And very few of my neighbors happened to be there at that time. So I'm hopeful that people will do their duty and vote because really that is the most critical way that we can have a voice in local elections. And they matter so much, especially now. And I can't avoid it, Lucy Lang, but you have a former president of the United States right now as we speak on a Monday in court in Manhattan for a different case. It's a real estate case, but you also have the attempt to overturn the election, January 6th coming up, that trial. 
and the idea that the just recent Siena Times poll shows the former president of the United States, someone who has fostered dissent and people's belief in voting in the election system has soured in many ways. It's hard to see where this country is going when the support goes in that direction. A great leader said recently to me, our job as leaders is to have hope. So it may be naive, but having spent nearly 15 years as a trial lawyer, I have tremendous confidence in the judicial process in this country. It doesn't always get it right. It's far from perfect. But it is the best that civilization has yet known. And so I believe that the process will play out and that the outstanding attorneys who are working on all of these matters will do all they can to ensure that justice is served, that people are held accountable regardless of their position, and that the country will be stronger, especially with the continued work of the state employees who are laboring every day to make sure that our bridges are safe, that our parks are protected, that our most vulnerable populations are getting access to the benefits to which they're entitled. It is really about what's happening on the ground. And when you focus on that, you can't help but have hope. Well, let's end on a hopeful note. Tell us about your grandfather, the education reformer Eugene Lang, who founded the I Have a Dream Foundation. My grandfather was the son of immigrants and grew up going to school in East Harlem. He was a busboy at a restaurant. And one day a wealthy patron said, young man, you have a good head for numbers. Where are you going to go to college? And he said, maybe CUNY. And the man said, well, what about this college? And, and brought in a brochure for Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. And my grandfather brought it home. And his mother said, well, we could never afford that. And he reported it back to the patron who said, I'll pay for you to go to college. Whoa. At the same time, uh, he had a conversation with his high school guidance counselor who asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up. And he said, I want to be a social worker. And the guidance counselor said, well, you have such a head for math. Why don't you become a businessman and then you can pay a lot of social workers? So my grandfather, due to the largesse of essentially a stranger, ended up at college and went on to business school and ultimately ended up taking the model that he had benefited from and adopting a class of students at his middle school in East Harlem and making sure that they had the supports that they needed to get through high school and ultimately on to college. And that's become the model for the National I Have a Dream Foundation, which works with kids across the country to make sure that they get to college and that when they get to college, that they have the resources to stay and to succeed. And I'm very lucky to still be in touch with some of the young people who he first uh, made that connection with in 1981, which was the year that I was born. And some of them are working for the State Department. Some of them are working for law firms. I mean, they're doing really remarkable things, and it's great to see their kids going on and excelling as well. And of course, you graduated from Swarthmore. I did indeed. What a hopeful story at the end. Just think about what that means. You work hard, you get recognized, and something good can happen. One hopes. Lucy Lang, State Inspector General for New York. Always a pleasure to speak with you. And as I tell all my guests, I only hope We'll get you on record right now saying you'll come back again. You know I will. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, David. The Capital Connection is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. You can listen to The Capital Connection anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. And join us again next week at this same time for another political conversation 
For the Capital Connection, I'm David Gustino. Support for the Capital Connection comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities through the Public Schools Unite Us initiative.